0: And you can turn to, well, actually, we will be in 1 Corinthians 12, but I am going to start us in John, the Gospel of John. So if you'd like to turn there, so I don't have to make you turn twice, John chapter 14, you want to turn there. Um, And so I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag. I don't know if you have that phrase here, but um, we are going to be dealing with, for several weeks here, uh, quite a weighty topic. I'm going to warn you at the beginning that this is a very controversial uh, subject, you wouldn't think it would be, right? We're talking about spiritual gifts, yet it is a controversial subject because it has uh, sort of divided the evangelical church. I think probably no biblical doctrine has been more more abused or misunderstood, probably, <clears throat> than, than the idea and doctrine of spiritual gifts. But it is vital that we understand spiritual gifts. I mean, there's a whole several chapters just here for us to understand those things that Paul writes. So obviously he wants us to understand the importance of spiritual gifts. They're given to the church by God to equip us for ministry. And so it's vital that we understand spiritual gifts. Now, to begin with, I'm going to be going very slowly. We're only covering three verses today. But I think it's very, very important that we start with what's the church. First, let's just start there. When we talk about gifts being given to the church, what do I mean? Am I talking about a building? I'm certainly not talking about a building at all. I'm not talking even about a denomination. I'm not talking about um, any kind of human or earthly institution because a church is, certainly is not. I'm not talking about even a, a social agency, like a charity, you know, here on earth to sort of just meet the needs of the community. All those, those things happen. That's not primarily what the church is. It's not a place where you go get married, buried, or baptized, right? It's not really even a place where loving, like-minded people come to hang out. Now, there might be an element of truth to some of those things, but it's not what the church ultimately is. Ultimately, the church is, we have to recognize this, a supernatural living organism. That's what the church is. Because we believe in a supernatural God, do we not? We believe in a supernatural God. And he revealed to to us himself through a very supernatural means, the Bible, right? Through the Bible, he revealed himself to us. We believe in a supernatural manifestation of God in the flesh through Jesus Christ. We believe in that supernatural virgin birth, right? We believe in his supernatural resurrection from the dead. We just spent a week talking about that. And for those who do believe, then a supernatural transformation takes place and you become something new. You become a new creation. And then the, the supernatural Holy Spirit indwells us and endows us with supernatural spiritual gifts to be used to minister and to edify this, this supernatural living organism. That's the church. Uh, it's not a building. Ecclesia. it's a called out ones, an assembly called out for a particular purpose. It's called in Scripture the body of Christ, and Christ is called the head of that body. Just to remind you of that, Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ is the head of the church. It belongs to him. He's going to build it. He's going to protect it. It's his. Now, I'm starting here because spiritual gifts are given to the church um, because they were promised to the church by Jesus Christ himself, who is the head of the church. And that happened in John chapter 14. It happened on Thursday of the Passion Week, which we just happened to go through. So it's fresh on your mind. So this is uh, obviously God's timing with all these things that we would have just talked about that. And now we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts. And in John chapter 14, this whole conversation takes place in that upper room where they shared communion. But after Judas has left the scene, Judas has gone to betray Jesus, and Jesus then begins to launch into this amazing teaching to the disciples. And in John chapter 14 is where he first begins to mention the Holy Spirit. in verse 15, this is where I want to start here. John chapter 14, verse 15. He says to his disciples, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now that had to sound completely weird to those disciples. But he says, I'm going to go, but I'm going to pray the Father. He's going to send a helper. He calls him the spirit of truth. And when he comes, he's going to be in you. He's going to be inside you. Skip ahead to verse 26 of the same chapter. He mentions this helper again. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, Jesus has said he's going to leave, right? He says, I'm going to go, and you can't go where I'm going, and they're confused. Where can you go that we cannot go? And he's, he's talking about his death, isn't he? And so he says, listen, but this helper's going to come, and the helper's going to remind you of everything I've taught you. It doesn't matter that I'm not here. When that Holy Spirit comes, everything is going to become clear. And then you skip to chapter 15, verse 26, and he mentions the helper again. But when the helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father. And every time he mentions coming from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. You should underline that in your Bible. The role of the Spirit is to testify of Jesus. That's that's why you have the Spirit, to testify of Christ. And then in John chapter 16, verse 7, and this is really where I wanted to take you. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus says, I basically have to go away. It's to your advantage. Because if I go, that helper is going to come. But he's not going to come unless I go away. Do you see that? So the Holy Spirit, this is what I wanted you to see. The Holy Spirit, that helper was promised to the church before Jesus' death. Okay? Before his death. That's Thursday, Friday, Right, Thursday night, he's betrayed. Friday, he's, he's, uh, he's um, crucified. He rises from the dead on Sunday. And then he repeats that same promise after the resurrection. Now, when we looked at this a couple weeks ago, we looked at the Passion Week, right? And on Resurrection Sunday, we looked at five of the ten. There's ten appearances by Jesus after he rose from the dead. But we looked at five. Five of those take place on that Sunday. right? On the Sunday morning, he came out. We looked at those, okay? But there were ten. And we are told that Jesus appeared 10 times, right, over a course of 40 days. And you might be going, well, where are we told that? Well, it's actually in the book of Acts. And since you're in John, we're in luck because it's the very next book. Okay, you just turn to the very next book, Acts chapter 1. All right, this is still Jesus on earth before he has ascended into heaven, but after his resurrection. It is Luke that is writing the account of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke has also written a gospel, hasn't he? So Luke has written two things. He's written Luke, and he's written Acts. And that's helpful as you read verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He says, the former account, his Gospel of Luke, I wrote about the things that Jesus did and taught and and how he died and he suffered, but he rose from the dead. But now he tells us, but he appeared to people for 40 days. All right? So those 10 appearances took place over the course of 40 days. The sixth appearance happens a week later on Sunday. He appears to the same uh, uh, group of disciples, except Thomas is in their midst. That's when he tells Thomas, hey, put your hand, right, in my, you know, put it in the hole. No, it's me. right. Over the rest of the 32 days is when those other appearances come. He appears to the disciples way up in Galilee. Remember how the angel said, tell my brethren to go up to Galilee because I will meet them there. That's where Jesus appears to them. On the Sea of Galilee, he cooks a little breakfast by the sea, right? And he eats fish in front of them. That's when he appears to seven disciples. Then he appears to over 500 of them. Paul tells us that, right? On the Mount by Galilee, he appears to obviously to his half brother, James, and then the 10th and final appearance. Where does that happen? Right here, Acts chapter one, verse four. Look at this. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. So he is with them in Jerusalem, but to wait for the, and here it is, promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. There it is. He is reminding them right in there. Okay, we're in Jerusalem. I need you to wait here in Jerusalem and don't leave. You're going to wait for what? The promise of the father, which I told you about. That's what he's saying. And we just read about that in John chapter 14. Everyone with me, right? He's just telling them that promised helper I was talking about. He's coming. All right. And when is he coming? Look at verse five. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's coming really quick. And by the way, that's John the Baptist he's talking about, right? John baptized you with water but you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit, and it's going to happen pretty soon now. So it's going to happen not many days from now. When does that happen? Well, first, let me just take you to the end of this little event, because Jesus is talking to them. He talks a little bit more about the Holy Spirit in verse 8. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and that's when you'll be witnesses, okay? But here's his ascension, verse 9. Now, When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So there's Jesus' ascension. He ascended into heaven... 40 days, right, 40 days after the resurrection because Luke just told us he appeared to people over the course of 40 days. Okay, so now he he has, he has risen and he's uh, appeared to them. He's promised the spirit. Now he has ascended. He's no longer on the planet. Now, how do we know the Holy Spirit actually arrived um, not many days from now? Well, it turn to, your, turn to your Bible. It's chapter two of Acts, right? Chapter two of Acts, and here is where the Holy Spirit comes not many days from now. Now, this happened, we're told, at the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is a feast that takes place 50 days after Passover when Jesus died. That's why it's called Pentecost. When did he ascend? 40 days, right? So when he said, ah, not many days from now, the Holy Spirit's coming, he was right, right? Because 50 days, here comes the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which explains why the disciples were in Jerusalem. It's one of the feasts that they had to attend they're in jerusalem they're in a a, a room together and the holy spirit uh, comes just like jesus says now let me i'll just recap kind of what takes place the spirit gives them tongues they're able to speak in different languages and we're going to talk about that when we get into our passage believe me and everyone in the in the town thinks in the city of jerusalem thinks they're crazy or they're drunk because all of a sudden they're talking like gibberish in different languages okay Now, Peter recognizes what's happened. At this point, Peter's finally caught on to things, okay? They just saw Jesus. He said, not many days from now, you're getting that helper that I talked about you in the upper room, right? He's put it all together. He's connected the dots. So Peter stands up and gives a sermon. And I want to draw your attention to this in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk. (laughs) See that? They're not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. I'm telling you, we're not drunk. But what is it? But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. You see, Peter's connected the dots to the point where he recognizes that this is a prophecy of Joel, and he quotes it, the Old Testament prophet. Now he goes on to preach this amazing sermon throughout this whole passage, and look what he says in verse 32. This Jesus, God, has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So he's testifying to the resurrection. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, now he's talking about the ascension, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. You see, Peter's now, he's got it all clearly together to the point where he's able to preach a sermon on it instantly. He's like, I, I got it all now. This is what happened. See, he's connected the dots to the point where this he's going. his mind has gone back to that upper room. The Spirit could not come. Remember he said, it's to your advantage I go away. He could not come until Jesus had ascended and been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Jesus goes into heaven, and then Peter says, that's when the Holy... So that's what you're seeing now. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul does the same thing. In Ephesians chapter four, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, I'll just read it to you. But Ephesians chapter four, he connects the presence of the gifts with the ascension of Jesus as well. I'll just read it to you. He says this, now, he who descended, Jesus descended to earth, is also the one who ascended, Far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now he has just listed sort of offices in the church, but there are ones that come with the gifting of the Holy Spirit. His pastors, right, prophets. Teachers. He's he's listed these things. And he connected it with uh, Jesus had to ascend for that to take place. So now that he has ascended, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, the new covenant age has begun with the church. Okay, that's the biblical historical account of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit come the gifts. Is everyone with me at at that point? We're just trying to like bring us up to what we're talking about. Now, by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, we're talking about AD fifty-four to fifty-six. 20-some-odd years have passed. And in the church in Corinth, if you recall, they have so far been very successful at perverting most about everything in the church, right? And the same has happened with the spiritual gifts. They have perverted them so that they look just like everything else in the pagan world. Remember, they were bringing all the the pagan uh, lifestyles into the the church. They just dragged in their lifestyles. They didn't know how to disconnect them, right? So if you think back to chapter 1, of all this, the Greeks were enamored with philosophy, right? They loved Greek philosophers and they loved wisdom and philosophy. And so everyone attached themselves to a different philosopher and you boasted about who it was you followed, right? And what is Paul addressing in chapter one? Oh, those people that say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, oh, I follow Cephas, right? Where'd that come from? The Greek culture. They brought it into the church, right? They just brought that kind of same thing into the church. We're going to boast about who it is we follow. In chapter 2, think about the Greeks with those philosophers. What were they always arguing about? Philosophy, human wisdom, right? The vaunted wisdom of uh, the Greeks. And that's what Paul addresses in chapter 2. He says, my speech, my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, right? But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So when I came, I didn't come with human wisdom. I came with power, with, with demonstration of a spirit doing something. He continued by saying that we did not speak the wisdom of this age, but the wisdom of who? God. All right? But they again, they dragged in their obsession of of human philosophers and human wisdom into the church. And what it did, it polarized the church. You had these divisions taking place in the church. You think back to chapter 5, and they had uh, sexual immorality rampant in their church, right? Well, it was a sexually immoral culture, wasn't it? But they had worse and gross, more gross sexual immorality in the church, right? There was a a man that had his father's wife. And so Paul is addressing that in chapter 5. In chapter 6, remember Corinthians loved to go to court. It was like a sport to them. What were they doing in chapter 6? Suing one another, right? They're just, again, they're just bringing in the worldly things from Corinth into the church. Chapter 7, Paul dealt with messed up marriages. Certainly marriages was in decline in the Roman society. They dragged in their views on marriage into the church. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, that's all those chapters on liberty, right? And you had this society where it was a anything-goes type of society in that culture. And so people were just acting any way they wanted without any regard to anyone in the church, how it affected them. And then even recently, chapter 11, we saw how feminism was beginning to creep into the church. Paul had dealt with that as well. My point is this, that everything that was culturally a part of their lives was dragged into the church, Why? Paul told us. Because they were carnal. They were worldly, he said. They were fleshly. And they failed to leave their worldly lifestyles behind. And I bring all that up to remind you of that so that we don't think for some reason, now that we've come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that there's something different different happening here with the gifts. You have the same problem happening with the gifts. They brought in uh, the practices of the other religious experiences into the church. And we could spend a long time Studying what's called the mystery religions of the world, but they all basically have the same background And those types of mystery religion beliefs and experiences were just dragged into the church because they were taught about this Holy spirit and these gifts that could come and boy everybody wanted to nab those gifts Especially the more showy the better, right? So he's writing here to correct them That's what he's doing and we're gonna look at just three things in this passage Today, because I've spent 20 minutes just introduction. So, we're just going to spend uh, a little time. We're going to look at three points the importance of spiritual gifts, the danger of spiritual counterfeits, and the test of the spiritual gifts. So, if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're just going to read the first three verses. It says this Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today, and oh Lord, we recognize we definitely need your Spirit's presence here as we embark upon this study that's going to encompass several chapters. Lord, what an important topic for us to study Spiritual gifts, Lord, we do pray for uh, discernment. We do pray for wisdom. We do pray that your spirit would illuminate truth, Lord, because it's vital that we understand spiritual gifts and why they're given to us and how we are to best use them, Lord. And so we just pray that you would guide us into this study, not just today, but be with us each week as we gather and even in between as people uh, chew on these truths, Lord. Would you just guide us into truth. We don't want to be in error about such an important thing. So be with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So number one, just to some point, is the importance of spiritual gifts. And verse one, he just says this, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, when he says now concerning spiritual gifts, it's almost as if he's saying, all right, now in the second place, it's like he's continuing a thought. So I kind of have to take you back a little bit to chapter 11, um, because it's been a few weeks, he's sort of piggybacking on of what he was talking about there. In chapter 11, verse 17, remember he said this, now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, so here, see, this is his first point. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And if you recall. He was talking about the divisions that were taking place at the Lord's table. People were coming in and gorging themselves on the food, right? The poor were getting nothing, the rich were eating all the food. And it was this terrible display of selfish, selfishness. And so um, it was meant to be something that was a reminder of the selfless sacrifice of Christ, right? But they had turned it into this exhibition of, of selfishness and greediness, right? And gluttony and drunkenness. They had perverted it into that. And so he says, first of all, let me deal with that. But here, they're doing the same thing, but they're doing it with the gifts of the Spirit. And that's why he says, now, concerning spiritual gifts. In the second place, let me address these, all right? I want to talk to you about spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant, he says, about spiritual gifts. Now, very important note I need to make here. If you look in your Bible, if you have a written Bible, not a, not a phone, you probably notice that the word gifts in your Bible is italicized. The reason it's italicized is because in the Greek manuscript, that word is not there, okay? The actual word, the actual phrase is this, now concerning spiritual. That's the phrase. Now concerning spiritual. So you might be going, okay, how, why do we have gifts there? Well, first of all, look at this word spiritual, okay? It's pneumaticus, Pneumatikos. Very simple word, actually, because if you look at the first part of that word, pneuma, most of you know that word. It's spirit, right? And spirit could be your spirit, human spirit, but spirit could also be Holy Spirit. How do we most often know which one it's talking about? The context of the passage we're reading, right? That's how we know. Similar kind of thing we do with pneumatikos. In fact, any time in the Greek you see an IKOS at the end or an IKON or something like that, it is referring to the qualities of that word. So this is simply the spiritual qualities or characteristics of the spirit. That's what, you're, that's what it's talking about. And it's used 26 times in the New Testament. And every single time it's used, it relates to the Holy Spirit, except for one example. And that one example, it's obvious how it's being used, because it says in Ephesians 6.12, that he's speaking about the spiritual hosts of wickedness, okay? It's, it's Satan's hosts. But every other time, it's relating to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know this gets technical here, but the, since the masculine and the neuter forms of the word, they're always the same, then it can indicate two things. It can mean spiritual people or it can mean spiritual things. So when you look at this, someone has put in spiritual gifts. How do we know what it is? Why is it not spiritual persons, right? In fact, some people think it is spiritual persons here because they think Paul has been talking to the carnal people, in the first 11 chapters. And now he's come to the spiritual in chapter 12 because these are the ones that have the gifts. I do not see that, okay, myself. Here's how I think we know the word is gifts. Look at chapter 14. Skip ahead just a bit. In fact, if you just sit down and read 12, 13, and 14, you'll see he's talking about all the same things in context here. But chapter 14 starts the same way. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. You have the same thing. Gifts is an italicized, So it just says desire spiritual, but especially that you may prophesy. What's telling us there? It's telling us the prophecy gift, right? So we know it's talking about gifts and not people. To desire spiritual people, but to desire spiritual gifts. So it's pretty clear then that we can put gifts back in chapter 12, and that's why they do that. But also you can just skip down to verse four and see that he's talking about diversities of gifts. So I just put that to be... A little bit technical, but because some people do try to to avoid some of the complications around spiritual gifts by saying, well, he's not really talking about that. He's talking about people. Well, he is talking about people. (coughs) He's talking about the the same carnal people he's been talking to in the whole letter. He's not talking to a different group here. And notice what he says. He says that he doesn't want them to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Look at this word ignorant. Agnoeo. Agnoeo. He basically says, I don't want you to be wrong. I don't want you to, uh, to, to not understand or to be unaware. In fact, that word unaware, this same word is, is translated unaware back in chapter 10, verse one. So he's used it before. But here he says ignorant. Okay. Back in chapter 10, he reminded them of the spiritual lessons that they should have learned from Old Testament examples. But here he, he's saying, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant of the spiritual gifts. Why? Because they're too important. They're just too important. You guys, the church cannot mature without spiritual gifts. The church cannot function without spiritual gifts. And most importantly, Satan wants to counterfeit them. And he does a pretty darn good job of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, this kind of stuff is still going on. He says this. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan counterfeits an angel, and his his minions do the same. They counterfeit themselves as members of the church, as apostles in the church. That's what he's saying. Uh, Satan has always tried to counterfeit. That's that's just what he does. He's not original. He just tries to copy what God has done but provide a counterfeit option for you. And there's so much misunderstanding about an abuse of spiritual gifts today that it has split the evangelical church. And you know what? That's exactly what Satan wants. He loves to see that. So we really can't afford to be ignorant, can we? When it comes to understanding spiritual gifts, we have to grasp this. And Paul really wants... His people to grasp this. One last note about verse verse one. Notice Paul called them brethren. Yeah. So again, this, this church is, is the brethren that he's been talking about. Yeah, he, they've been acting carnally, but they're still brethren. You can go back all the way back to chapter one, and he calls them brethren. In fact, up to this point, he's called them brethren 14 times. So again, I think it's another reason to see that Paul's not changing his focus away from carnal people, they're still his brethren. They're still a church. They're still spiritual people. They're the same people, but they, they, um, they're just carnal. They're worldly. They bring the world into their lives. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. You have to understand them. All right, number two, the danger of spiritual counterfeits. Take a little bit of time on this. It says this, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. However, you were led. Now, there's several things going on here. It appears that what's happening, and you have to read Paul's second letter as well, that some of the problems the Corinthians were experiencing were were not due entirely to their carnality. That was certainly a factor of it, but also to the presence of of false teachers, like we just read about, right? People coming into the church uh, claiming to be believers and claiming to have gifts and the Corinthians listening to them. Now, it doesn't necessarily come to light in this one verse. You have to look into the next verse, so just stay with me. We're going to spend time in this verse first. Notice what he says. He says, you know that you were Gentiles. You should know the word Gentiles is ethnos. It just means a non-Jew. Okay, that's all it means. But by the time the New Testament came, it came to be referring to non-Christian. It it broadened, okay? So not just a non-Jew, non-Christians. In fact, Paul used it in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he's talking about brothers and sisters using their own vessels, their bodies in a sanctifying way. But he said, not as the Gentiles who do not know God, right? He's talking about non-believers, right? They, they sort of uh, are in the passion of lust, is what he says. So it is used in the New Testament in that way. So he is talking to them. He says, listen, at, at one time you were, you were non-Christians. You could say it that way. And you were carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. He's just reminding them again of their former pagan lives. And notice that he says they were carried away. Very important to look at this word. It's apago, and it means to lead away, but in a a controlling way. So as if being led off to prison is how it's used in the New Testament. And that is very true. When you are not a believer, you are essentially a captive. You're a prisoner, right? You're a prisoner of sin, and that includes the flesh and you're prisoner of, of Satan. The Bible is very clear about that. And I just want to show you some of the scripture that Paul talks about with this. He describes the Gentile, the ethnos, the unbeliever, in Ephesians chapter four. Listen to how he describes it. I think I have it for you. He says, this I say, therefore, and testify to the Lord that th- you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, the rest of the non-believers. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness now this sounds so like harsh right like what but listen there's a basic truth here the sinful nature at work means our 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 understanding has been darkened it means that our our thought It's futile now because our hearts have been blinded. That's the idea. And so we are now in that state. We're easily led away to things. We don't have the spiritual discernment to know. We're just led away into things. And that's why we see a a whole world of people led away to idols, right? It just doesn't seem to make sense to us as we look at this, but, but that's a perfect description of the Corinthians before they were converted. And it's a perfect description of myself, before I was converted, and you as well, right? That we were blind, that I had a futility of mind. Um, uh, you read these things and go, well, but I didn't give myself over to lewdness and uncleanness and greed. Like We start looking at this words. well, that wasn't me. It's like, no, that was you. That was me. May, maybe not to like the extreme sins that we say, but you still have that. I had that, right? And we're led away into a life away from God, And it's our sin and our flesh that does that. But notice this, it's not only sin that that holds the believer uh, captive, but it's also Satan. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul talks about it this way. He says, and you, he made alive, speaking to Christians, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the error the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is huge. He says that you actually in sin now, because you were in dead in trespasses and sins, you're dead. Satan loves that dead person. He'll let you walk. You can walk as a dead person. Walk according to the course of this world. You know what that means? That means you're walking according to the Satan energized world. This world belongs to Satan. He's energized it. He controls it. And you walk according to the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The Jews believe that, The spirits lived in the air. Who's the prince of the powers in the air? That's Satan. So he says, you walk then in sin, and Satan uses that, and he guides you into that life of disobedience. He says, working in the sons of disobedience. Why? Being dead, we have no power to resist sin and Satan. And Satan tries to ensure unbelievers stay in darkness. That's his method. That's what he wants to do. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe. Why? Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan does not want that light to shine. Now that sounds really dark and foreboding and discouraging. Can I just tell you that God overcame that? All right? The Holy Spirit overcomes that. The promised helper that comes was sent to convict the world of sin. So as powerful and as strong and as hopeless that it is a hopeless situation, but that's why God had to intervene. You have to recognize that you were in a hopeless state and that you needed someone to save you from that. That was your life. That was my life. I needed saving from that. And he's reminding them of that and says this. So the result is they're easily carried away, in their case, to dumb idols, he says, right? And now he doesn't mean stupid idols. He means mute idols, idols that can't speak. And his point is this, okay, for the, for the converted Okay, for, for those that have, has, whose minds have been enlightened, whose eyes have been opened, Okay, we've been freed from the kingdom of darkness. The most obvious thing in the world is that an idol can't be a god. It's obvious to us. Why? Because it can't speak, right? It's made of wood. It's made of stone. It's absolutely clear to us. I, I've been to Japan. I see them worshiping these giant, I'm like, wow, bizarre. How could you even think that's a god? Someone made it, Right? It's just so obvious. That existed in the Old Testament. Remember Elijah challenged the 450 prophets of Baal to a challenge, right? What was the challenge? Let's see whose God is real, right? Right? You cry out to your God, and let's see if he hears you. And I'll cry out to my God, and we'll see if he hears me, right? You remember they were like, oh, Baal, hear us. And scripture is so, I love it, how specific it is. It actually puts this in, but there was no voice. No one answered. But who did answer? God with fire from heaven, right? But no one answered the prophets of Baal. Jeremiah talked about these, you know, these these idols. He says they're upright like a palm tree, but they can't speak. That's the telltale sign. It's obvious to us. They can't talk. It's not a it's not an idol. Look at Habakkuk how he describes an idol. Woe to him who says to wood, "Awake," or to silent stone, "Arise," it shall teach. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there's no breath at all. Again, you see the breath? It doesn't speak. It doesn't talk. It has no life. Yet in the darkened and blinded state, people don't know any better, and so they're easily duped into believing that an idol's a god. Now, stay with me. I'm trying to connect the dots here, okay? Here's Paul's point to the Corinthians. You're no longer blind. You no longer walk according to the prince of the power of the air, right? You should not be easily duped into following idols again, but you're being duped right now. Do you see what I'm saying? That's why he's bringing this up. Some of them were so fleshly, so carnal, that they had become confused about their worship and the gifts. And so they, they had once again sort of paganized those things. And Paul, he's really rebuking them here, right? They're not being discerning. They can't tell the difference between what is spiritual and what's, you know, the Holy Spirit and what's demonic. They can't tell the difference between what's real and what's counterfeit. And they should, right? It should be obvious to them uh, now that a dumb idol, you know, they can't speak. That can't be a God. It should be just as obvious when a spiritual gift is counterfeited. Why? We should be able to tell the difference is his point. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. That's why we should be able to tell the difference. So hopefully you're tracking with me here because this is gonna become more evident as Paul goes into this next verse because in the next verse, he gives two tests or principles that are tests. You can use this test to test whether or not something is truly from the Holy Spirit or not, okay? One is negative, the other is positive. So here's point three, the test of the spiritual gifts. This first one is a negative test. Look at verse three. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God Calls Jesus accursed. Now, hopefully, this is connected for you. Now, if you go back to verse two, into this, it makes a little bit more sense, right? Right? You were Gentiles; you were carried away to dumb idols, right? You should know the difference. So, I guess I'm just going to have to come out and tell you: if you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot stand up and say Jesus is accursed, and have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you tracking? This is what he's saying. Like, how, how did you lose that discernment? This is why, this happens today. Well, but hold on, That's, they got the spirit. They say they have the spirit. There's an obvious no, an obvious no. You can't, he said, you can't do it. So let, I'm just gonna come out and say, he says, I'll make known to you, no one speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. No one does that. That just should be obvious. That should be logical. But this is the thing, the Corinthians had accepted that kind of thing. Right? They had come to judge the nature of the use of the gifts on experience rather than content, rather than what was actually being said or done. It didn't matter what people really said as long as they claimed it was by the Spirit. And then again, the more, more impressive, the more showy, the better. You'll see some of that come out as we go further in this. And you really might be thinking, well, how could a Christian really say Jesus is accursed? Accursed is a strong word, anathema. Well, a couple of things. The Jews believed that Jesus was cursed. Because, um, because of Deuteronomy 21 said that anyone who was hung on a tree is, is cursed. They really believe that, well, he had to be cursed by God if he was hung on a tree. But it's more than that. In the first century, one of the first heresies that began to enter the church in that first century is called docetism. You might be more familiar with Gnosticism. You've heard that? Okay, in Gnosticism, all of them were docetic. A Gnostic was a docetist. They just had other things as well. So it's kind of the same thing. But docetism was the first one that came in. It came in while these churches were in existence. What is docetism? Taught that Jesus Christ was not a true human being. He taught that he was... That, that, that he only appeared to be a man because he was a pure heavenly being, and that pure heavenly being could not touch the fleshly, worldly stuff. That would contaminate him. He couldn't, he couldn't do that. So that means he couldn't, um, he couldn't physically suffer. He couldn't physically die. He couldn't physically rise from the dead. So they deny all the humanity of Christ in that way. He couldn't actually be a man. The Gnostics are the same. They say the material world is evil. It's bad. He couldn't be part of that. So it was the physical body of Jesus that they had cursed. And I think it's that heresy that's starting to come in. And we know that it's coming into the church because John dealt with it later as well. And I wanna take you there to his first epistle. So not to John's gospel, but to John, he has three epistles at the end, right before Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Go to 1st John. These are really, really important. I've pointed these out to, to our church before, but I will tell you, I marked these down and wrote these in my Bible Years ago, I still have them written. That's why I still use a Bible that's falling apart because, because it, uh, it has everything written in it that I've written years ago, right? First John chapter four, turn there. These are so important. In first John chapter four, we have tests, tests that you can use to test whether a spirit belongs to the Holy Spirit or is another spirit, right? They're, this, they're written here for us. But John wrote these same ones to battle the same thing, the same heresy, docetism, okay? Look at chapter four. Uh, in chapter four, there's three tests. I'm mostly gonna give you the first one. I'll just fly the other ones through by you. But, but the test one comes in verses two to three. Test two comes in verses four to five. And test three in verse six, okay? So let me just show you test one. Verse, well, start, let's start in verse one anyway, because he sets it up. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. There it is. Don't 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 believe every spirit. But what? Test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There it is. You can't just believe, oh, wait, that's, that person said they have the Holy Spirit, so let's just, no, you got to test it. Here's test number one, verse two. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? Flesh is of God, right? You see that? You cannot deny the humanity of Christ. You can't. But that goes with the deity of Christ. You can't deny it. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. So that's test number uh, one. And listen, scripture teaches that Jesus came uh, from heaven, took on the form of a servant, died. He came as a man, right? But he was fully God and fully man. So test one, you could say that, uh, that the person, you're, if you're uh, you know, observing the person and, and their, their gift or whatever, does that person confess divine Christ? Everything about Christ, do they profess that or do they not? That's the, that's the test. If there's something off with Christ, they're not of the Holy Spirit. It's a very, very simple test, right? Very simple. Test two, I don't want to read it all. I'm just going to give it to you so you can look at them on your own, okay? Verses four to five is, does he profess a divine life? That speaks to the character of the person, okay? Look at the person saying those things. Does he have a divine life? Is he living by the Spirit himself? And then test three is in verse six, does he profess of divine law? Does he care about the authority of God's word? Okay, those are those for you to look at on your own. But I just wanted to show you that John addresses the same thing. That's the same test That Paul gives to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, no, uh, no one, right, speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. You can't be off about Christ and say you have the Holy Spirit. Do you remember why? Going back to the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes to what? To testify of Christ. You remember that? So you you can't be off if you've got the Holy Spirit. If you're off, you got to question the Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what Paul's saying here. It's the same test. It's a negative test, but it's a it's a test uh, here. Basically, he says anyone who does that has just given themselves away. You can't take what they're saying. Um, you have to take it with a grain of salt, right? Now, sadly, this heresy continued to plague the Corinthian church anyway for years because he wrote to them in the second letter at this, in verse 11, uh, chapter 11 in, in his second letter. I'll just put it up on the wall for you. He says this, but I fear... Lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he, com- who, if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He's concerned saying, if someone does that, you actually might accept that. I can't believe it, but you might do it. All right. So the first test is, a, is an important test. It's a doctrinal test. Doctrine matters right? What do they believe about Jesus? If they hold a negative view of Jesus, then what they say or do, it cannot be from God. That's the point. Here's the positive test, second half of verse three, and we'll wrap up with this, okay? And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, okay? So no one can say Jesus is accursed, that's the negative, but also you can't say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, you might read beating this and go, well, well, hold on a second. Can't an unbeliever utter those words? Like, couldn't someone without the Holy Spirit say, Jesus is Lord? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, they could. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's that happens all the time. What Paul is speaking about here is a sincere confession, right? Because Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the what? The will of my Father in heaven. It's not lip service. Talk is cheap. Right? You put your money where your mouth is. Right? If he really is your Lord, act like he is your Lord. That's the point. He says you can't really say, so it's not just about what they're saying. Do they really profess a divine life? That really goes into test number two from John, right? Do they profess a divine life? Are they obeying Jesus as Lord? That's a true mark, obedience to God's word. Years ago, when we first came to Wales, it was 2012, it was at the peak of one of these guys coming into into ministry Todd Bentley, and many of you are very familiar with him at this point. But I will tell you, I had many conversations with people. Many people were enthralled by Todd Bentley. I was like, who is this Todd Bentley? I'm going to go look this guy up, right? I watched a video of Todd Bentley. I had to watch him for all of 30 seconds to realize the man did not have the Holy Spirit. Now, I've had these tests in my Bible for a long time. It's easy for me, right? But for people who are like, I didn't know there were tests in the Bible. Now you have them. Don't let a Todd Bentley get you. You know why I knew? He got up there and said, The Holy Spirit told me to go kick that lady in the face. And so I went up there and I kicked her in the face. And I went, hmm, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, none of those. It took me 30 seconds to say, not of the Holy Spirit. And people go, well, hold on, let's wait. This man's gifted. he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not going to tell you to go kick someone in the face. Do you see what I'm saying? The Bible makes things simple for us. You know who complicates it? We we do. Yeah, you're like, raise your hand right here. (laughs) <laughs> we do. You know, it's just crazy. And he, he actually disqualified himself years later because people found out he was uh, an adulterer and he could not kick that habit, even though they kept trying to get him back into to ministry. But there's no evidence of fruit of the Spirit and there was no obedience to his Lord, even though he confessed him as such. It is true that Jesus is our Savior. We praise him for being our Savior, but the word Savior is used less than 10 times in the New Testament. But Lord over 700 times here's my question is he your lord is jesus your lord lordship of christ is extremely extremely important he cannot be your lord if you've not submitted to him in obedience and that means to everything and jesus says why do you call me lord lord and not do the things that i say you see expects it of you if he really is your lord When a person believes about Jesus Christ, that is the test, the test of whether or not someone says or does, you know, uh, uh, have the Holy Spirit, right? If they don't believe everything the Bible says about Christ, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Do they believe in the deity of Christ? Do they believe in the lordship of Christ? That is where we must start. That's where Paul starts with the Corinthians. Next week, we'll really begin to dig into Paul's teaching on the actual types and the uses of the spiritual gifts. Some of it's going to be a bit crazy, but I wanted to give you the foundations first to start there. So stick with us in this study. I don't. I want us to all be on the same page here. So I don't want anybody to miss. So make sure you come back for next week. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the truth that is in it. Lord, I thank you that you give uh, you give you give simple tests like this and like in in, in John for for simple people like me. <laughs> Lord, to, to easily identify whether it's something is truly of the Holy Spirit or not. Lord, it's just so important as we begin to, to go into these studies, Lord, of, of the, the gifts of the Spirit, that we might truly manifest the right Spirit in this place for your glory. So be with us again, I pray, Lord, during this study. Lord, just keep us, keep us uh, Lord, tightly knit. Uh, keep us focused on truth. Keep us rooted in a Scripture and, and rooted in Christ, Lord, that we might not fall away. And Lord, just um, I just pray that you would just continue to illuminate these passages before us, Lord, that we might truly be able to um, come to a proper understanding. And I also want to say, Lord, uh, if there's anyone here today that, that has not uh, made Jesus Christ Lord, has not confessed Christ as Lord, I just pray, Lord, that today is the day of salvation. That's what Scripture says, today. Uh, not tomorrow, not not to think about it. Jesus is either your Lord or he's not. And Lord, it's clear that every knee will bow one day. Every tongue will confess one day. Why not make that day today? So Lord, just just impress that truth upon people's hearts, I pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.